please welcome General Blau. Hello. Um, <laughs> so thank you guys so much for coming out this afternoon. Um, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really grateful to Skylight Books for hosting this book launch. And I'm going to be reading a little bit from the book. I'm going to be showing some pictures. And then I'm also going to just talk about some of the crazy places that I've been and some of the interesting people that I've met along the way. So it's not really going to be like a, you know, best of... Death Valley, you can get that in the book. Instead, it's going to be like a little bit more of um, kind of a behind the scenes. Um, so as a, as a way to describe what Death Valley is like, I'm going to try to focus on some of the forces that literally shaped Death Valley's landscape. So um, wind, water, and some of the characters who live out there or who lived out there. Or as my husband suggested when I was putting together this presentation, wind, water, and weirdos. <laughs> so a lot of you guys have asked about the cover of this book. I did a lot of the photography in the book, but I did not take this particular photo. I love it, though. It's beautiful. And this is actually a salt flat, not, um, not snow, although there is snow in Death Valley. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to just start out by reading the introduction to the book. Death Valley may be as close as you get to visiting another planet. Its sculpted sand dunes, crusted salt flats, towering rocks, and polished marble canyons will make you consider your place in the universe. Declared a national monument in 1933, then signed into national park status in 1994, Death Valley is the largest national park in the lower 48 states. It's located in the northern Mojave Desert. The park is named after the prominent valley within the region in both extremes of temperatures and elevation. One early travel advertisement promised all the advantages of hell without the inconveniences. From the oppressive glaring salt flats of Badwater Basin at 282 feet below sea level to the snow line at Telescope Peak, 11,043 feet above. A complex and varied geology spans eras of seas and volcanoes, tectonic forces, and fault lines. Death Valley holds spectacular sights for all to see, but its secrets are not so easily given up. Dotting the landscape are hidden springs, mining camps, and ghost towns, petroglyphs, and the sacred spots of indigenous people who call the valley home. Decaying or preserved, battered by wind or watered by secret oases. These places stand as a testament to the frenzy of human hopes and the fury of imagination. Get out of the car and walk the twisting canyons, search for waterfalls or petroglyphs, and listen to the wild landscape. This was and still is a place for dreamers. Pyramid schemes and tall tales abound. Thousands came here to seek their fortunes, some remain etched into popular history while others have faded into local lore. Come to be awed and humbled, dazzled and pushed out of your comfort zone. You'll wonder whether the searing heat and whipping cold are creating a mirage or lifting the scales from your eyes. Okay. So these are actually the Eureka sand dunes. They're in the northernmost part of the park. And I included them because they're really kind of geographically spectacular. They're the highest dunes in the park. Um, they're over 700 feet. And they're also singing dunes, which means that pieces of sand particle like rub together and create this re really strange booming sound. Um, but I also included the dunes here because a lot of people imagine that Death Valley is just like one big sea of sand. And the reality is that dunes only cover about 1% of the park. Okay. So just a little tiny geography lesson. Um, so a lot of people just have no idea where Death Valley is or even like what it is really. So it's a national park. It's in California. There's a tiny section in Nevada. It's called the Nevada Triangle. It's in the Mojave Desert. It's on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And um, that's the major mountain chain that runs north and east and kind of divides the state. And Death Valley is, I'll show you, like there. So it's, it's the green spot on the side, on the right. Okay. 
Uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas are the two closest major cities. Neither one of them are close at all to Death Valley. Um, To get to the main park hub from Los Angeles takes about four and a half hours. To get there from Las Vegas takes about two and a half hours. Uh, From Los Angeles, all the routes to Death Valley are actually really interesting. So if you're going to check out Death Valley, I would highly recommend you just make it a road trip and check out stuff along the way. Um, If you enter from the western side, then you'll get to go through eastern Sierra Nevada mountain towns. Um, You'll pass through the Owens Valley, which is infamous in Los Angeles history because of the water use battles. Um, Depending on which route you take on the western side, you could pass through historic Mojave Desert towns like Randsburg. You could check out the Trona Pinnacles, which is a really strange dry lake bed with really eerie limestone formations. Um, If you enter from the eastern side, you'll start out on the 15 like you're going to Vegas, and then your jumping off point will be the town of Baker, whose claim to fame is it has the largest thermometer in the world. Um, You'll head uh, north on a really beautiful drive that takes you through these tiny little hot springs towns of Tacopa and Shoshone, and then you'll get to Death Valley Junction which is an almost ghost town with a haunted hotel. Okay, so this is kind of really small. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you can see it, but that's just a map of Death Valley. Okay, so Death Valley is massive. It spans 3.4 million acres. It's the largest national park in the lower 48 states. And for the purposes of travel and for writing this book and doing all the research, I divided it into four different regions, and they both ended up they all ended up having kind of their own um, personalities. Um, so Furnace, I'm going to start with Furnace Creek. It is the most popular place to visit. It is the main park hub. And this is the place that most visitors go if they're just passing through or have a day and just kind of want to see the main sites. It's kind of, I'll try to show you. It is right there. It's kind of right in the middle where the two main highways meet. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to read the introduction to the Furnace Creek chapter. So, so this is uh, Furnace Creek and the Amargosa Range. And if you're following along, which I see some of you are, it's on page 26. <laughs> okay. The Amargosa Range rides the eastern boundary of Death Valley National Park from the California-Nevada border south to the Amargosa River in the southeastern corner of the park. The grapevine, funeral, and black mountains roll down into alluvial fans as the valley trends north in a wash of salt-crusted desert floor the length of the park. At its most extreme, the valley sinks below sea level, generating hot winds that lick at the mountain slopes. Shimmering heat and the unrelenting blue sky inspire wonder at the resourcefulness of the indigenous people who called this area home. How did pioneers cross this expanse with their lives intact? The Park Hub of Furnace Creek provides a good introduction for first-time visitors and includes many of the park's highlights, Zabriskie Point, Badwater Basin, Artist Drive. You can wander among alien salt formations, red canyons, pioneer camps, or muted mineral tones with the mountains as canvas. Like the chaotic geography that makes Death Valley famous, this area bucks easy categorization. Heading away from the magnetic pool of the valley's center reveals pristine sand dunes, bubbling oases, and forgotten mines. So this is one of the bubbling oases. Um, This is Saratoga Spring, and it is in the southeastern corner of the park. So there there is water in the desert, Many people are surprised to find out, but it's really rare. And so it makes any oases, springs, streams very, very special. And this is a rare example of wetlands in the Death Valley area. There was also um, talc mining in this area for a time. And there was an enterprising guy who had a water bottling plant out of the Saratoga Spring. Short-lived. Okay. Okay, probably the most famous site in Death Valley is Badwater Basin. Um, it's 282 feet below sea level, so the lowest point in North America, and it feels like it. It's a very still, very stifling, very strange place. It's basically just miles of salt flats. 
Um, these are salt formations that are just stretching in every direction, and it's not flat. Like right when you start walking out, it's kind of flat because tourists are just walking on the salt, but the farther you go out, the, the formations get more chaotic and really strange. Um, and it's just crazy to think about moving pioneer wagons kind of across these flats, but that did happen. Death Valley is also the hottest place on Earth. The record was set in 1913 with a temperature recording 134 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that was at Furnace Creek, the main park hub. And Badwater Basin is even lower in elevation and also hotter than Furnace Creek. The temperature does vary a lot by elevation. It's a good survival tip when you're traveling to kind of estimate um, what the temperature is going to be based on elevation. It's about five degrees cooler per thousand feet that you go up. So you can see that even though it looks hot and sunny at Badwater Basin, if you look behind me, that's Telescope Peak, the highest peak in the park, and that's covered with snow. So even though uh, Furnace Creek was kind of the most touristy area, um, it's still really, really easy to get a lot of solitude and just to find some places that no one else is going. So one of my favorite places in the park was uh, called the Ashford Mine Camp. And this is not it. That is my camp. Um, and the Ashford Mine was a gold mine. It was in operation from 1907, to 1907 until the 1940s. And the first time I tried to make it out to the mine camp, you have to like drive on this rocky road and then do like, it's only like a two and a half mile hike, but it's really hard to find. So, you know, it's a really remote location. There, you're trying to follow this old mining road that was just washed out in a series of floods. Um, so I didn't make it. So the next time I was just, I was so curious and I just had to get to this place. And so I made sure to set up my camp like right at the trailhead um, so that I could go bright and early in the morning. So this is sunset at my little camp at the trailhead. And I found the Ashford Mine, and it was just as awesome as I thought it was going to be. Um, there are just the hillsides are just sprinkled with cabins and little dugouts and underground living spaces. Um, there's old furniture. There's the old bunkhouse and kitchen. It was amazing. Um, and it's an interesting place, too, because it just feels forgotten. And it's really easy to kind of stand in the midst of this camp and think about what it must have been like to just live and work in such a remote setting. And if you look behind, that's, that's the Death Valley floor. So you're just looking across to this really kind of stark expanse. So another one of my favorite places on the eastern side of the park is um, actually just outside the park boundary. And the Amargosa Opera House Hotel is located in Death Valley Junction, and that's kind of the gateway on the eastern side. And it's pretty much a ghost town, except for the hotel, which is working, kind of. Um, so the, the Amargosa Hotel was originally constructed by the Pacific Coast Borax Company, and it was called Cork Hill Hall. It had a dormitory for miners, had a 23-room hotel, a store, a dining room, all the stuff. And the hotel and the rest of the town fell into decline when mining and the railroads went away, and it just sat there and was crumbling and forgotten. Um, in the late 1960s, a woman named Marta Beckett, and there's a documentary out there about her, and some of you may have heard of her, but she was traveling cross-country from New York with her husband. They got a flat tire and just felt compelled to stay in this crumbling, desolate uh, location. So she took over the opera house. She reopened it along with the hotel. She painted murals. She reopened the stage. And this all sounds like really heartwarming and wonderful, except that the place is totally haunted. Um, the first time I went out here, I... I kind of heard that it was haunted, but I was really just expecting kind of a charming little eccentric place. And I went out with two friends, and um, one of my friends had been there before, and she said, you know, just to warn you, this place is really, it's really haunted. I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure some strange and like kooky things have happened there over the years. And she's like, no, it's really haunted. <laughs> so I don't have any evidence like that this place is haunted. It was featured on the Travel Channel's like Ghost Hunter show. But um, <laughs> I will say that the place feels very cold. It is chilly. It's a very unwelcoming environment, even on a 110-degree day. 
they leave some of the rooms open so that tourists can just wander through and just kind of experience this weird vibe. And um, Marta Beckett's murals really contribute to that strange feel. Um, she paints things like cherubs and medieval scenes, but they're painted on this cracked stucco, and they do not brighten the place up. Okay, this is um, this is one of them. <laughs> okay, so this is an example of a mural. So nuns, you know, not creepy at all. Um, <laughs> So, uh, as another example of the hotel's creepiness, the first time I visited, there was a room full of antique junk, um, bed, stove, pots, pans, broom, lamps, a noose. Um, And then, finally, there's a section of the hotel called Spooky Hollow. It's never been remodeled, it's completely closed off, and the staff won't talk about it. All right. <laughs> so we're going to switch to a different uh, region and talk about the Stovepipe Wells region, which is, I will again try to show you. So it is kind of where that triangle is. That's the Nevada Triangle. Stovepipe Wells is the second park hub. There's a little village there. Um, okay. Sorry. For such a small slice of Death Valley, <coughs> excuse me, the Nevada Triangle holds many attractions. <coughs> On a map, the region opens fan-like toward northern Death Valley between the Grapevine and Cottonwood Mountains. Squeezing through the Grapevine Mountains is Titus Canyon Road, which winds more than 27 spectacular backcountry miles down to the valley floor, dense with salt and sand and with little human population. Here, boulder-filled alluvial fans lead to steep mountains and the area's signature wind-sculpted canyons. Stovepipe Wells, a touring outpost built in 1926, still sits on the toll road, now Highway 190, that officially kicked off tourism in Death Valley. The road was originally built to join Stovepipe Wells with Lone Pine in the Sierra Nevada and now serves as the park hub for this region with a campground, a hotel, a restaurant, and gas station. Black dust clouds have been known to sweep down into stovepipe wells, seemingly from nowhere. Camping at stovepipe wells one spring evening at dinner time, we noticed a big dark cloud hovering over the Cottonwood Mountains. We had just enough time to look up and wonder if it could possibly be rain on this clear sunny day when the dust storm hit. A downburst of cold air pummeled the campground as we all held on. It swept out as quickly as it came, leaving the campground strewn with equipment. Unstaked tents had taken off like kites. Shell shock gave way to awe as a double rainbow appeared, and we realized we had experienced the sheer intensity of the desert. So the windstorm that I just alluded to was totally crazy. My sister and I were camped at the Stovepipe Wells campground, which is basically like a big parking lot. And we were sitting at our campsite, we were having dinner, when all of a sudden we just saw these huge dark clouds. And before we could even start to speculate about what was happening, we just got pummeled. Um, we, all we could do was kind of just reach out and just hold on to everything in sight and just duck our heads and, and weather it. So it lasted for a few minutes, but then the campground was just destroyed, just totally devastated. So the next thing we knew, we were wandering around asking, like, is this your spoon? Um, Tents had just gone flying. It looked like a tornado had hit. And then the double rainbow did appear. Um, But the best part happened when people returned who had been gone when the windstorm hit and wondered what the hell had happened. And we overheard our neighbor trying to explain it, and the best he could say was, "Uh, we had a wind event. (laughs) Speaking of double rainbows, um, this is Titus Canyon. And this is a spectacular 26-mile drive. It starts in Nevada and winds down to the salt flats of Death Valley. And it is a double rainbow all the way drive. It is incredible. Um, 
rock formations, petroglyphs, even a ghost town. Highly recommend it. This is the ghost town of Leadfield, and this is along the drive. So this was a mining boom town. It was just really fueled by kind of wild speculation, lots of irresponsible advertising. 300 people flocked there, and a post office was established in August of 1926, and by February 1927, the town was over. So these are some of my favorite um, ruins also in the Nevada Triangle section of the region of Death Valley. And these are ruins from the ghost town of Rhyolite, Nevada. It's a very grand uh, ghost town. So in a lot of ghost towns, you see just kind of these crumbling shacks and a bunch of old junk laying around. But here, the main streets are lined with the ruins of all these two-story banks. Um, The first post office opened in 1905, and at its height in 1907 and 1908, there were between 3,500 and 5,000 people here. So it was a very spectacular rise and fall. Okay. And Rhyolite, strangely, shares a space with uh, the Goldwell Open Air Museum. So this is a sculpture installation space that was started by a group of Belgian artists in the 1980s and they clearly were interested in making kind of really haunting images that really kind of play against this kind of desert backdrop. Okay. The third region is the Scotty's Castle and Eureka Valley region and that is at the very the northernmost part of Death Valley. So the part with no roads, um, no towns, no campgrounds, nothing. That's it. Um, Scotty's Castle is a historical mansion and it's kind of the only little outpost of civilization there. It's a tourist attraction. But other than that, there are just no other services or anything in the northern part of the park. I think I read once that the only modern building there was this tiny little... um, outbuilding, like a vault toilet that is at this primitive campground, and that's it. Other than that, everything is old or doesn't exist. Scotty's Castle and the Eureka Valley. Somehow the words remote and vast don't quite do justice to the Eureka Valley. These words are often used to describe Death Valley, but the Eureka Valley takes them to the next level. And this northernmost valley, the only existing modern building is the tiny pit toilet at the Eureka Dunes. The trade-off for all this remoteness is the lofty and pristine Eureka sand dunes, the alien dry lake bed of the racetrack where rocks move and leave tracks, the shining and desolate views of the Saline Valley from Ubihibi Peak, the highest peak in the Last Chance Range, and the copper mining camps, forgotten and few. The one bastion of modern civilization, Scotty's Castle, exists thanks to Death Valley Scotty, an infamous swindler who convinced his benefactors to build this Spanish colonial-style mansion in the middle of the desert. The castle stands high and incongruous in the rocky twists of the Grapevine Mountains. Crowds wander its lush green grounds and tour the period-furnished house. Except for restrooms and water, there are no services. Campgrounds are few and primitive. There are no gas stations, restaurants, or lodging. The Last Chance Range divides this area, and its name alludes to the fact that it's the least accessible range in the least accessible region of the park. The sprawling and rugged Eureka Valley is studded with hidden gems. Come prepared for long drives on teeth-rattling roads and take the time to find them. The effort you spend planning to become self-sufficient will pay off with the quiet dazzle of pristine desert, gleaming sand dunes, and starry nights. So one of my favorite areas to explore in this uh, Eureka Valley region is a valley called the Racetrack Valley. And the journey out to the racetrack, which is the destination for most people, is 25 miles long. And it can be completely harrowing and terrifying or really easy, depending if the road has been graded by the Park Service. 
So the first time I went out there was completely harrowing and terrifying, and I did not know if I was um, going to make it out with my car intact. Um, but you'll know you're almost there when you reach Tea Kettle Junction. And this is just a famous landmark where people hang old tea kettles. Okay. So you eventually get to the racetrack, which is a big dry lake bed called a playa, and it's this kind of really smooth clay with a very fine layer of silt on top. And one of the great mysteries of Death Valley up until a few months ago when um, a scientific study kind of you know, figured out why all this is happening, but there were, uh, there were rocks that were kind of sliding around on the racetrack and leaving these very mysterious-looking rock tracks. And it really, I mean, you see these rock tracks and it just looks like aliens were there and you're like, this was just aliens and that's what happened and I don't need to know anything else because <laughs> it's so strange out there. But apparently what was happening was that Anytime there was a little bit of precipitation in combination with really cold weather, little ice sails would form, and then you have to have the right amount of wind. So all these things have to come together. This happens just every few years. Um, and these little ice shields form like little sails and push, push these rocks. No one had ever seen it happen up until a couple months ago. So the mystery is solved, but it's still a very, very intense place. It's a very quiet and stark place. So I spent a few a few days out there uh, camping. Um, it's my camp. This is at the south end of the racetrack. Gave me a chance to explore the racetrack, do some hikes, and explore um, some of the crazy ruins out there too. These are the ruins of the Lippincott Mine, and this is looking back. You can see the racetrack valley in the distance. And obviously this is like a very dramatic, um, dramatized photo, but it was a pretty spectacular day. And I just kind of loved the, just the juxtaposition of like these weird ruins and this spectacular um, natural beauty. Okay, I also explored the Lost Borough Mine. This is another place out there in the Racetrack Valley. It's a very picturesque place. And then if you go outside of the park boundaries and you kind of just keep going north a little bit, they're just, you're in Nevada and there are a lot more ghost towns. Um, so one of the most interesting ghost towns that I visited, because a lot of these are just little and they just really qualify as ghost camps if you want to be really technical about it. But So one of the ghost towns I visited that I really loved was just north of Death Valley, and it was a living ghost town. So that means that really it should have been a ghost town, like all the industry is gone, but somehow people are still living there, even though it looks like it, it is abandoned. Um, so Gold Point is a privately owned town, and it had basically just was mostly abandoned. There were a few old-timers living there. In the 80s, when this guy, Walt, and his friend, Herb, started just buying up properties. And um, now they live there. They welcome visitors. There are a few other people who have bought property there as well. And you can visit. And um, they'll open up the saloon for you. They'll you know, give you a little tour. So this is the saloon. And this is the main street, and these cabins have all been actually fixed up on the inside, so this is where people live. And it's just a super just picturesque place. They basically dragged all this desert junk that they found in other places, and it's just now a big museum to desert junk. These are old um, fire trucks. And this is Walt. Um, okay. So he acts as kind of the unofficial sheriff and barkeep. And this is a very fiercely independent community. And you kind of understand their, um, their fierce independence when you go out there, because this place is so remote. They're just not close to kind of any government center or any cities. So if you do visit coming from the big city, just understand and um, don't talk politics with them. But <laughs> other than that, they're amazing, very hospitable, interesting people. Okay, and this is just, I don't know, this picture is just so silly. It's like me hanging out with, like, these desert rats. There's Walt. Um, this just this dude with a Jeep who had just been exploring with his wife along these old rail lines. And these are the kind of people who are just totally dorking out about the desert. And, uh, yeah. Um, okay. So the last region is uh, Panamint Springs and the Saline Valley. 
So that is actually on the western side of the park. So this section kind of runs along the along this. And those are the Panamint Mountains. Um, Panamint Springs is a really kind of charming, privately owned motel with, and restaurant. They have a campground and a general store. It's just inside the park boundary, but it's been privately owned forever. Um, and the Panamint Mountains form the western boundary of the park. And they're full of mining camps and creeks and springs. And then just on the eastern side, within the park boundary, on the eastern side of the Panamint Mountains, Panamint Mountains is the Saline Valley, and that is a very remote valley, and it has some famous naked hippie Saline Valley hot springs, okay, which we will talk about. Okay, but first I'm going to read the introduction. Okay. Part of the joy of visiting Death Valley is feeling like you've come to the ends of the earth, or even that you've landed on another planet entirely as you gazed over the cracked and alien landscape. In the western Panamint Mountains, the relatively high number of creeks and springs, historical sites, and network of old roads that just won't die create a different kind of planet, one more akin to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom than Star Wars. Old cabins and ghost camps are scattered through the wrinkled folds of the Panamints. Some are forgotten, rotting into trickling springs, while others remain well visited by those still caught by the camp's mystique. Tales of silver spread through the mountains and caused towns like Panamint City to swell and burst. Today, some time and effort can take you to these hulks of history to marvel at the sheer determination that got people and equipment up to these remote and rugged locations. The western Panamint Canyons are wet by, comp- the, by comparison to the rest of Death Valley and is not unheard of for a flood to wipe out everything in its path, scouring a canyon down to the bare rock, marooning trucks and equipment. Of course, there's the marvel of seeing water in the desert, plummeting down a canyon to form waterfalls and pools or gurgling along the surface, all making for wet and wild hiking experience. Joshua Tree Forest, a salt lake, and one washboard road make the Saline Valley a time capsule to tourism. Death Valley before Death Valley was a destination. In the Saline Valley, you give up your civilized right to a cell phone for a quiet and beautifully varied landscape. Driving Saline Valley Road will take you past rarely visited sand dunes and give you access to quiet ghost camps and scenic canyons. Death Valley is known for its contrasts, and the Panamint Springs area is no exception. The drop from Telescope Peak, the highest mountain in the park, down to the valley floor is a dizzying 11,331 feet, higher than the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Enter Surprise Canyon from the blazing hot ghost town of Ballarat, only to have to fight your way through dense greenery, scrambling over waterfalls and past sculpted white canyon narrows. Winter brings snow and ice to the higher elevations. Summer brings scorching sun. All year long brings the possibility of wind that has no scruples about scooping up your camping equipment to sacrifice to the desert gods. This western side of Death Valley would grab you with the stinging silence of the Saline Valley and rope you in with the untamed canyons of the Panamint Mountains. People come back year after year and season after season. It's different every time. So this magical looking place is the Saline Valley Hot Springs. And these were developed in the 1960s by a bunch of really industrious hippies who uh, tapped into the natural hot water to make this really idyllic retreat. And the whole area was annexed by Death Valley in the 90s, but for the most part, they've just been allowed to govern themselves. The park service is kind of hands-off, so it still feels like a very kind of free community out there. Um, Speaking of which... I'm sure. I'm not sure if you guys know um, what a shirt cocker is, um, but um, you're really likely to be greeted by one when you get to the Saline Valley Hot Springs. So imagine, you know, 50-something-year-old guy, maybe a golden orange tan, um, wearing a shirt, no pants. Um, this is a very large demographic. Is <laughs> there very? Um, their approach to being free in nature. It's alive and well there. So I was out with a friend um, for a few days, and we 
showed up and we were looking for a campsite and we wanted to kind of move away from you know that community and just maybe find a place that was like a little more a um, little more secluded so we found a spot and it was nice it was secluded and there was one campsite set up next to us and no one was there we just there was a tent and some stuff and so we set up right next to them we didn't really know who our neighbors would be and after we got set up they came rolling up literally two dudes um totally naked on bicycles <laughs> and they introduced themselves and just announced that they were mac heads and they were going to be listening to a lot of fleetwood mac um <laughs> So we felt like it kind of could have been a lot worse. <laughs> so Matt and Parker ended up being really good guys, actually. Um, they rescued a car full of German tourists who were on their way to celebrate a birthday in the Hooters in Las Vegas and had somehow found themselves on this very remote road on the complete opposite side of the park. So Matt and Parker were, um, they were driving on the Saline Valley Road and they were on their way to the town of Big Pine, which is about an hour, hour and a half drive. And that's the closest place to get beer. So Matt and Parker are on a beer run and they come across this, this car full of guys. They're broken down. They have, have two flats. They have no spare tire. They have no tools, of course. They have nothing. They have no water. They have no, nothing. So Matt and Parker stop. They help them out. They take the tires back down to the camp where Lizard Lee, the camp host, fixes the tires for them. They take the tires back up and then they continue on their beer run, saving the day for the Germans. Um, <laughs> but what it started out as a six beer trip, so of course on the beer run they're drinking beer on the way to the store, ended up turning into kind of a 12-pack trip before they got back to camp. Okay. So the one thing that I didn't mention is that um, the Saline Valley can be very windy. And so this one particular trip when I was there, it was um, three days of almost nonstop wind. So the people who spend a lot of time out there just have goggles and, you know, they just do it kind of Burning Man style. And we weren't totally prepared. So this was our best attempt to just, like, fend off the wind. The only other thing you can do is just sit in the hot springs, like, up to your chin. Um, so when we were setting up our camp, it was a little bit windy. We knew it was going to be worse. And so we made every, we took every precaution. We like staked everything down and we, like we took the tie ropes and we tied them around rocks and bushes and just did all the stuff and just really did an amazing job of setting up our camp. Um, so, you know, we went to bed that night. I was in a tent. My friend was sleeping in the truck and uh, the wind got really bad in the middle of the night. But we mostly slept through it. And I woke up in the morning and looked out, and our um, alcove, which is our wind structure and like shade structure, so it's supposed to protect us from the elements, was totally gone. It's just like there was no trace at all. But I wasn't really worried about it because I figured that my friend had just gotten up in the middle of the night and taken it down because she knew that the wind was too strong. I wasn't worried about it until she woke up. I was like, oh, when did you take down the alcove in the middle of the night? And then we realized that the wind had just just taken this thing. We found one twisted stake laying on the ground. We tried to track this thing. We could see the movement that it had made as it was kind of like tumbling around like a big jellyfish. Like you can tell it was like still attacked. And we tracked our alcove through the desert and eventually we lost it. So apparently it is still out there somewhere. We look at over at uh, Madam Parker's campsite next to us, and of course it was a total mess. They had like empty beer cans and straw hats and t-shirts. All that stuff was totally fine. <laughs> okay, so the other side of the Panamint Mountains, um, just on the very, very western edge uh, has its own whole set of adventures just waiting to happen. And this is the, the, the would-be ghost town of Ballarat. So it's a really fascinating place. I'm just going to read a couple sentences of description about it. Ballarat has been teetering on the edge of ghost town status for more than 100 years, but it can't quite get there. The town looks like a mirage when you approach it, set on the shimmering salt flats of the Panamint Valley floor, dwarfed against the dramatic backdrop of the Panamint Mountains. 
Ballarat had its heyday between 1897 and 1905 as a resupply and entertainment center serving the nearby gold and silver mines. At its height, it claimed all the institutions of civilization, including a post office, a school, general stores, a jail, and more than its share of saloons. The only thing lacking was a church, an oversight that has not gone unnoticed by people who pay attention to this kind of thing. Although the post office closed in 1917, Ballarat continues to be a nerve center of sorts for this remote area. It's a must-stop for news about road camping and hiking conditions. The town has a general store. It serves as a welcome center. The store does not have regular hours, but the caretaker is usually on site, and it's been open every time I pass through. The only supplies available are icy cold beer and soda, dispensed from an antique ice chest. But when the temperatures soar to well over 100, this may well seem like the momentary answer to your needs. So if you look on the front porch, you can see this guy standing there, and that is Rocky Novak. He is the single resident of Ballarat. He is what keeps Ballarat from being a total ghost town. He lives there year-round, and Rocky is just a fount of information. Um, He usually knows information about road closures and all kinds of stuff about Death Valley before anyone else does. Everyone going through the area stops to see Rocky. Um, This is a really good place to start. There are a bunch of canyons in the Panamint Mountains, and so starting at Ballarat gives you access to lots of amazing drives and backpacking trips. So we started out at Ballarat to start a backpacking trip through Surprise Canyon up to the ghost town of Panamint City. So this is another... Ballarat is an interesting place in its own way. Um, It has a lot of... A lot of old desert junk sitting around. This was actually a truck that was owned by the Manson family. And uh, their Barker Ranch is really close by, and it was actually the last hideout of the Manson family, and that's where Charles Manson was arrested. Okay. So starting out in Ballarat, we hiked through Surprise Canyon. And Surprise Canyon is a glorious place. Um, There's lots of water I speculated that that might be the surprise of Surprise Canyon. Surprise, there's tons of water here. Um, The trail is actually through the creek, and you're just passing waterfalls. It's a sculpted canyon. It's amazing. And at the end of this trek is Panamint City, which has just tons of cabins. It's a really fascinating place. So we started out on this backpacking trip, and the trip from the starting point to Panamint City is only five miles But, you know, very quickly into the hike, my GPS stopped working, and, you know, it was a really hard hike, and so we thought that we had um, hiked a lot farther than we actually had. So after hiking for hours, we just really felt like we should have gotten to Panamint City, and we, you know, panicked, as you do, and we started looking at our maps, and we decided we just must have just somehow just missed Panamint City, which is not possible. I mean, this is a canyon that you just walk through the canyon, and then you end at Panamint City. There are no other turns. There's nothing else happening. You can't get lost. Uh, But we thought that we probably got lost, and so we were just going to set up camp and then, um, you know, relax and then figure it out in the morning. So we found this amazing campsite. We set up camp, and in the morning, we're just kind of relaxing, sitting around camp, like, trying to figure out what we're going to do, and this hiker... It's like nine in the morning, but he's like industriously like hiking past us. And we stopped this guy and we're like, hey, you know, where are you going to? And he just looks at us and he says, uh, Panamint City. You know, there's no other destination out there. And so we're like, oh, great. You know, we'll see you up there. And we hurried up and got all our stuff together and followed him up there. And of course, Panamint City was only another mile down the road. It was a very tough mile. It was very steep but we could clearly see that this was a road. But, I mean, you can see the road. And those are the ruins of Panamint City. It's an incredible place. Um, It really feels kind of like a post-apocalyptic summer camp or something. I mean, it has, like, an old cowboy hot tub. Like, there's a bathtub that you rig up over a fire. And um, there are old mines and there are creeks and cabins and just really amazing places to explore. One of my favorite cabins was a place that people have called the... uh, the Panamint City Hilton, um, because it saw glass in the windows. So there's also some interesting kind of junk art around, so people go and just kind of collect this whole junk, and they turn it into little wind chimes, and the stuff is just kind of hanging everywhere. It's a really neat place. 
And then this was a 57 Chevy abandoned in Panama City. And I just love this bumper sticker because um, sometimes I really would rather be in Panama City. Um, Okay, so what I learned from my year in Death Valley, okay, um, <laughs> this is my summer essay. Um, I learned the beauty of maps. Um, I always appreciated maps before, but there's almost no cell service in Death Valley. GPS is notoriously unreliable. So it's a pretty scary world if we're just blindly relying on GPS. And I took a lot of pleasure in kind of going through these maps. Um, even when the weather seems calm, always stake your tent. Um, the desert takes but the desert also gives back and last you probably haven't gone as far as you think you have so um, thank you so much for coming out I'll open up to a couple questions if you guys have any questions and then afterward we're going to head down to El Chavo El Chavito at Hillhurst and um, and Hollywood just um, everyone's invited All Right? thank you Yes. Shirt cocker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were driving with pants. Yes, thankfully, thankfully they were going into town. You know, you gotta, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're imagining this. <laughs> That's another story. Yeah, Lauren. <laughs> You know, I don't know, and actually the neighbors, the two guys, they were just fully naked, which is way preferable in my book. Yeah, but for some reason, the older set, the old timers, just, I don't know, that was just the way they do it. Maybe sunburn. Sunburn. Right, that's true. That's a great point. That's it. Just want to know about the shirt cockers. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Like the history. Yeah. No. Hey, Jade. These are petroglyphs, and I just, you know, I, I didn't fit any talk of like Indian native ruins or petroglyphs, but the truth is that there are just some beautiful, beautiful petroglyph uh, panels. I actually, it's a really sad fact that I could not write about their exact destinations, so I talked about them in here, but I didn't give any directions. Um, the, the People will deface them. It's kind of crazy, but there are some really beautiful petroglyph uh, and native sites that you can seek out if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, Larry. No. I haven't been there in years, but there was a little functioning bar and like restaurant. It was open like two hours a day. And because it's on the Nevada side, there was like nothing else to do in the whole town other than go in, you could grab like a hot dog, a beer, and play slots. That sounds amazing, but the old, uh, no, it's not still open. Yeah, well, the old train station is really beautiful, and it looks like it could just still be functioning, and I think that for a time they turned that into some kind of casino, uh, but now the closest place to go for any of that stuff is in Beatty, Nevada. It's only about four miles away, and there are a ton of, there's like a main street that's lined with saloons, basically. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Carrie. <laughs> What's the best month to go? If you've never been to Death Valley, when you tell me? People love spring because of the wildflowers, um, but I think spring and fall are equally good. And honestly, year-round. Winter, it, the days are kind of short, so it cuts into your time, but I've camped there on New Year's, and it's still really, really beautiful. But we're just heading into desert season, so October. So that's why this book, that's why the publishers put this book out right now, because it's like now is the time to go. So October's a great time to go. <laughs> okay. I'm sure it's called Death Valley because people died in, you know, in the area, but have anyone died, has anyone died recently from? Yeah, you know, historically not as, <laughs> yes, that is actually a really good question. <laughs> historically not as many people died as you think there were, basically the way that it got its name was that these group of pioneer 
explorers who were heading across Death Valley were trying to take a shortcut to get to the gold fields in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and they took a shortcut across Death Valley, which, you know, it was not an established route by, like, white explorers, and so they got stuck and bogged down, and a couple people died, but basically some of the party left and came back with help, so, like, two people died out of all these hundreds of people who should have died, but on the way out, uh, supposedly one of the people turned around and said, like, goodbye, Death Valley, because they had had such a harrowing experience there, but, um, Fatalities in Death Valley, I mean, it happens every year, but it happens in Joshua Tree, too. It happens in desert places where people aren't prepared. And it's not a more dangerous place to visit than anywhere else. Um, you just have to be prepared. You know, bring a ton of water. I don't go anywhere. I mean, I travel in Death Valley by myself. I just make sure I have everything that I would need if I had to, you know, survive for a couple days by myself. But. Ryan? How much, how much water do you bring? <laughs> An excessive, excessive amount that I always end up bringing home and using it to water all the plants on the deck. <laughs> Anyone else? Are there cabins that you can rent too if you want to? So there are, um, it, in Furnace Creek, there is there are two hotels. There's a historic inn. It's really, really beautiful. It's built in 1927. Ryan and I got to stay there, and it was just a really special place. Uh, there's also just kind of little uh, bungalows, and then there's a hotel. So there are places to stay in the park. And then in Stovepipe Wells, the other park hub, there's another kind of little series of bungalows. Panamint Springs has some really little charming motel rooms and, and tent cabins. Outside the park, there are basically two two tiny little towns that have a couple of hotels. Beatty, Nevada, that I mentioned, has some has some um, hotels. So you have to really plan where you're going to stay. There are not a ton of places, but, yeah, they're not usually all booked. So, <laughs> yeah, Brian. Did you have a lot of rattlesnake run-ins? I didn't have any. None. No rattlesnake run-ins, strangely. I did see a scorpion, and that was terrifying. It was, um, yeah, they're so weird looking. They look kind of like sea creatures. They're just really, really creepy looking. But, yeah. Is it true that ghost turtles? <laughs> okay, now some people are just, mm, yeah. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> sorry, inside joke. <laughs> Anyone else? Thank you very much. All right, thank you guys. <laughs>